Welcome to the Western Baal podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on a spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Love and Longing. May the heat of suffering become the fire of love. It was given by Vijay Fedorshak on July 24, 2021 via Zoom. Vijay is a spiritual practitioner of over 40 years, a trauma therapist, organizer of the Western Baul podcast series, and author of Shadow on the Path and Father and Son. This talk includes some teachings from The Alchemy of Love and Sex, a book by his teacher Lee Lazowick that he compiled with his recently deceased wife Karuna. The song Love Never Dies is sung by Lee Lazowick. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. DJ Fedorshak. This topic has such depth. We used to start talks with a song to begin with. I thought that maybe that would be good for tonight. So I'm going to play the song Love Never Dies. And then we'll talk a bit about this vast subject. Don't you just wish that sometimes you could forget when the pain's too much but she ain't left you yet and you're ready to get on with another new life but the old one is cutting you like a surgeon's knife. Love never dies, love never dies. Even when your heart has been split into, and your curse little sound, the sound of your name. Love never dies, and it's a goddamn shame. Even when you started. Happiness has come Somewhere down in the depths She still holds a gun And it's pointed right straight Straight at your head She's nothing but history But you're still being bled Love never dies Even when your heart has been split in 
was walking around today and there is this bird a hawk maybe i don't know <laughs> i don't know my birds but a big one and it is floating graceful and it's circling me it seems it goes off and it comes back and it's just around and around and I'm like looking up and almost falling over a little bit, just watching this thing. It just seems like so surrendered. And I'm thinking of my wife. When I first thought of this topic, I had no idea what I would talk about. But I knew it was relevant for me. There are stories from every culture and tradition that are so archetypal that move all of us because there is something in our depths that is being called by love. And <laughs> sometimes the, the stories seem puerile. But even then, there is some depth underlying that. A lot of the speakers have spoke about not wanting to speak above their pay grade. Well, this is ridiculous. But I do believe that sometimes considering things that go very deep in us is useful, even if we haven't had the full, <laughs> the full Monty, the full experience of it in an abiding way. I really believe that love and longing takes us to the heart of God and who we are. And this consideration of love and separation seems key. 
But first, I feel compelled to <laughs> begin on a more realistic level. We all start with conventional relationship. We grow up in families that are dysfunctional, where conflict and relational instability are common. There are degrees of this. So one of my other passions is in working with trauma as a therapist. In terms of conventional family circumstances, some are way more extreme, obviously, than others which are less extreme. On the more extreme end, there are people who grow up in families and have several ACEs. ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. There was a research study done in the mid-90s, 95 to 97 it started, in which 10 very simple questions were asked. Of 17,000 health plan members, it was done by Kaiser Permanente and a couple of researchers. And the questions were, have you ever experienced physical, sexual, or emotional abuse physical or emotional neglect, uh, parental mental health in your issues in your family, incarceration, substance abuse, domestic violence, or separation or divorce. And you would just get one point for each one that you had. And as it turns out, 67% of the people who participated, by the way, 75% of, of them were white, middle-class people, not lower-income people. 67% <laughs> of the people had at least one ace. And if you grow up in a situation where that's the case, in all likelihood, you model relationships that are dysfunctional in some ways. I think everybody should know about this study because we live in this world. If you have four or more ACEs, you are four times more likely to be depressed, 12 times more likely to be suicidal, and on and on and on. So that's on a more extreme end of the spectrum. Actually, that's not near as extreme as for kids that I work with. Not nearly extreme because the average number is about seven. On the other side, there's families without those kind of issues. But even so, anecdotal evidence tells us that we grow up in dysfunctional families where husbands and wives struggle with issues between them. In my own relationship, you know, we... We struggled with the fact that I had to work. She had to raise kids. She wanted more at times, especially during the time when we were child raising. But the thing is, is that you work with that. And if you have a spiritual perspective on things, hopefully you start to kind of work things out. I'm going to refer a bunch to this book, The Alchemy of Love and Sex, which I think is must reading for people for people not just if you're in relationship
you know, he speaks about how, I mean, this is no news, when the marriage contract is signed, you know, something different starts to take place. And in our culture that values possession so much and control, we transfer that onto our mates, especially once the contract is signed. So if, if our partner is on the phone, we want to know who it is. There are certain need systems that we have that we look for our mate to supply. I will try not to read for the whole time here because I could do that. <laughs> There's just so much to, to consider here. When one makes a choice to marry, that choice should not be a conventional one. The real choice is a choice to serve the other person for a lifetime. But that is so far from our current experience in conventional society. To me, it seems like this isn't, um, you know, a, a great big judgment. It just seems objective that we look to partners a lot to satisfy our need systems. But that's where we start. We have to start someplace, and that's where we start. And we can really take that all the way into the heart of love. Lee says to start with friendship. Real love grows through friendship. He says that there's three kinds of love. On another occasion, he might have said that there were four or six or two. But in this talk that Karuna and I transcribed and that became Alchemy of Love and Sex, 108 transcripts, actually. He speaks about chemical, emotional, and conscious love. So chemical love, I think we all understand that. You know, in thinking about this talk, I was thinking, you know, what could I say about chemical love? I mean, it's obvious, right? But then I start realizing, well, this is like animalistic in a way, and we're all animals, and no need to apologize for that. <laughs> but how to work with that? In my Yahoo news feed, I get stories about animals or videos of animals. I don't know. I went to Peru with my daughter, Lalana. I went to Africa with my son, Kina. And when I see like some lion and an elephant, like I click on it and I watch this thing to distract myself from whatever. And then they start sending you all this stuff. You know how that is, right? So I'm reading this article about the brown antichinus, like a little mouse, mouse-like thing, a marsupial. Not sure what the difference is exactly, but anyway. For two weeks in mid-August, this thing really goes at it. I mean, it can have sex for 14 hours a day. Really, 14 hours? I start reading this, and I start reading a little bit more. It's like, wow. It works himself up, the male, to such an extent that its immune system is so compromised that they all die. All these, all these little antichinuses. Anyway, this is chemical love, right? And chemical love by itself doesn't lead anywhere near transformation. Then he talks about emotional love. And we've all been, I think, in relationships where emotional love has been predominant. These are up and down and 
arguing and fighting and making up and being in love for short periods of time. And everything's wonderful. And then all hell breaks loose again. And when I was doing therapy, which was really needed in the early 90s, the therapist that I was working with gave me an article called, if I can remember correctly, I think I got this title right, The Compulsion to Recreate and Overcome Childhood Hurts. And in it, there was discussion about how if our needs are not met in early childhood, particularly by the opposite sex parent, then what we unconsciously do is we find someone like that parent to try to overcome the childhood hurts that happened back then. When we get older, we look for a relationship with that kind of person, which is like kind of why people repeat over and over and over certain kind of relationships with people. That seems like, why would you keep doing that? Because one of the things is that if you have unmet needs, you find somebody unconsciously who's unable to fulfill your needs. And so when they don't do that, things break up and then you get into another relationship where you try to find the same kind of person and on and on and on. Emotional love. So maybe that's a more extreme example for many of us that she doesn't fit um, at this moment, but emotional love. And then conscious love. <sighs> we'll talk a little bit about that as, as we go along. But the seeds of a deeper love, of consuming love, whirl all around us in movies, in books, in spiritual stories. So I was thinking of Romeo and Juliet. Lee wrote a poem about various lovers, and Romeo and Juliet was among them. And in this story, and many of you probably know the story, <laughs> Romeo's family is feuding with Juliet's family. They don't even know each other, right? So Juliet's family uh, is throwing a, uh, a feast. And Romeo decides with a buddy that he wants to attend. The reason I decided to for sure talk about this was because as I was bringing the things that I need to give this talk into the space, I came across a mask. And Romeo apparently got into the feast, even though he was from a feuding family, by wearing a mask, which I guess all the attendees did. And he sees Juliet, and they fall in love instantly, deeply. And you remember, the one thing that people remember about the story, I think, is the line by Shakespeare, you know, as he leaves the party, Juliet, like, I think this is the time when it happens. She opens her window and she's looking out and she sees him. And he says, parting is such sweet sorrow that I say good night till it be morrow. We get so involved in relationships that we don't realize, really, that we will be separated from our beloved. In this story, I don't know if you, you remember all this, they actually get married by a friar who prepares a sleeping draft for Juliet so that she will appear to be dead. And, oh, I forgot to mention this. Uh, at the feast, 
there's a fiance that is supposed to marry Juliet and she doesn't want to marry him. So she decides she's going to take the sleeping draft, pretend to be dead. The fiance is going to come see that she's dead. And then Romeo is going to come and whisk her away. Well, the friar wants to send a messenger to get Romeo. But what happens is that the messenger can't leave because of the plague. And so Romeo doesn't know that Juliet has just taken the sleeping draft. And when he shows up, he thinks that she's dead. And so he takes poison himself and dies. And she wakes up and sees that he's dead and that she stabs herself. All right. The seeds of longing are in so many stories. I found myself, this is actually not hard to admit, like weeping and watching some clips of the Titanic. There are fictional people in the movie about a historical event, but it's, to me, it's, it's actually really moving, the whole story, to watch it. It starts with a hundred-year-old Rose. So Rose was on the Titanic with Jack, these fictional characters, Kate Winslet and Leonardo, right? So this is Rose at 100 years old on a ship, a research ship that's going to try to get down to the Titanic and find in a vault this blue diamond that Rose was given by her fiancé, another fiancé story. So she begins to tell the story. She's on this boat with these people who are going to go explore the Titanic. I won't go into the reasons why she's there. But she tells her whole story, which is really what the, the substance of the movie. Rose is going to Philadelphia to get married to someone she doesn't want to. She's going to commit suicide, jump off the side of a, uh, of a ship. And Leonardo DiCaprio, Jack Dawson, sees her and coaxes her back off the ledge. And they have this experience for four days. It's nice when love goes for just like four days. You know, it's all wonderful. When you're with someone for 40 years, that level of passion ebbs and flows. But she gets this blue diamond from her fiancé, but she doesn't want to marry him. And through contact with Jack, I've read some things about this, her animus gets enlivened. She starts to assert herself in a way. She's not going to take being slapped around. And she is spending time with Jack Dawson, and they fall in love. And she asks him, to sketch her wearing only her blue diamond. So she decides that she's going to run away with Jack when they get to Philadelphia and not marry this guy. Probably keep the blue diamond. But Iceberg. I mean, you've seen the movie probably. They're on the front of the ship with their arms out in the wind and all that. Well, it's the opposite as the ship is going down. And... There are just hundreds of people in the water. And Jack gets Rose on a door. 
but there's not enough room for him. There's all these comments on the internet about whether Jack actually could have gotten on the door, but we won't go there. One of the things about conscious love is putting the other's best interests first, always. Like what serves her? And the seeds of deep consuming love I found in, in this in this movie that grossed I don't know how many hundred million. Jack is dying of hypothermia and telling Rose, making her promise to, to keep living, making her promise. And she does. She ends up having a family, having some kids, and now she's 100 years old. And she's on the ship telling her story. And at the end of the movie, you see this 100-year-old woman walking to the edge of the boat that she's on that's, <clears throat> that has the people on it who have either gone down or are going down, I can't remember, to the Titanic and trying to find the vault that they think may have this blue diamond or maybe they've discovered that it's not there already. I'm not sure. But she's at the edge of the boat looking down into the water that she looked down on 84 years earlier. And she pulls out of her pocket the blue diamond. She had it the whole time. They're going down trying to find it, but she had it. And she takes it. The woman is really, she's a great actress. You could just feel everything that she's holding. Her honor for Jack, her love for him, even though she's married and has kids, that she's kept in her heart all these years. And she lets it go. She lets everything go. She just drops it into the ocean. Love in separation from the beloved. Beloved with a small b. Another person is the doorway to the beloved with a capital B. I've heard. Beyond my pay grade. But I've heard. So I wanted to speak about some spiritual stories. And then maybe some of the, the principles that we might consider. But I kind of wanted to make it mundane in a way, contemporary, in our time and place, because these principles apply in our lives, like now. And it's not just between man and woman. We feel love for whoever we feel love for. Grandparents, maybe they lost their mate, and love is provoked in them by a picture there's this, um, another thing that came in on my news feed. Maybe you've seen this, maybe not. But there's a guy, a Chinese guy named Guao. I think that's how you say it, Guao. These days you can go online and type in the, a name and there'll be audio about how to pronounce it. So I think it was Gua. Maybe it's Gua. I think it was Gua. Gua Gangtang. He and his wife had a son and when the son was two and a half years old, he was kidnapped. You know, in China, uh, up until 2015, if you lived in urban areas, you could only have one child. And kidnappings happened, probably still do, but maybe more so then, I'm not sure, of 
male children because people wanted somebody to, to take care of them when they got older. Middle-aged people who, who knew that they would be older would actually have kids kidnapped and they would become the parents of this kid who might not remember anything about their early life. So these parents whose son was kidnapped obviously were like wrecked. And for 24 years, this guy, Gua Gangtang, hunted for his son. He went by motorcycle to 34 provinces, I read, with a flag with his young son's picture on it. Probably a movie was made out of this, but there was a book about it or something like that. They found the kid. They found the kid. And Gua said that only when I am on the road do I feel like a father. That's what he did. His whole life was about longing. You know, and then they found the kid and now everybody all over the world hears about the story. And for many of us, we're so desensitized by the horrors of the world that, oh, well, or we have maybe a sentimental or romantic mood come up around this thing. But I think that anyone who has had some kind of loss like that can really touch the mood that gets created by love and separation. Next part of the talk is going deeper. Thank you for your attention, by the way. Obviously, this is very meaningful for me, this topic. If anyone would like to speak at any point, please just unmute yourself and go ahead. Yeah, go right ahead, please. Uh, just that, uh, for your interest, uh, Stevie Wonder has a song called uh, Chemical Love. And he, in that song, he makes a distinction between chemical love, physical love, and spiritual love, what he calls spiritual love. Yeah, well, Stevie Wonder probably knows something about loss. Yes. When you've experienced some loss, you can feel very deeply. Yeah. Do I want to read about conscious love? It's just kind of important. Only conscious love can create a love affair in which the people in it are responsive to the laws of alchemy, the laws of transformation. Conscious love means to do whatever is best for your lover, even when it's antagonistic to what your ego would most like for yourself. And he's, he talks about how really ego can't decide what's best for a lover. You have to kind of really be out of your way to sense what is best for another person and then to be able to sacrifice to do that. Be willing to. When you consciously love, you can sense the perfection in your lover. I mean, we're just full of flaws, but there is a perfection there. In the creation of conscious love, we are working with a chemical factory that is more sensitive technologically than any chemical factory in the world. And so in this book, I hesitate to mention, he talks about use of sexual energy and sexual communion. The bonding that takes place there, <laughs> that's generally not the perspective 
thinking about sex in the, the world today. But something to consider if you're in a, a coupled relationship. Love is not enough. There must be knowledge. If we simply love, but we don't fulfill the law of sacrifice, we die. The conscious lover doesn't mind giving up whatever is necessary for the beloved. So I'm not sure Leonardo had knowledge of a spiritual sort like this, but I think that we all have some intuition of the need to sacrifice, to find love and to find who we are. Sacrifice, not in terms of giving up, but in terms of giving. And so the possibility of relationship on the spiritual path is that both people have some understanding of that, of the need to sacrifice, not just to each other, but to all that is. We kind of practice (laughs) with each other. Each other is a doorway. We give permission to the other person to grow. Okay, now I got to be careful because if I just start reading, even if it's like unbelievable material, you'll probably fall asleep. Catch this though. Once love enters your life, if it is love, it is permanent. It remains regardless of whether you continue in a personal relationship or not. Love never dies. If two people have love and their reference for that is one another, what they have to realize is that, one, they have love, and two, they happen to be together. It's not that they love because of one another, but rather that love is present in spite of a personal relationship. How fine. They have love for one reason or another, and it doesn't matter why. They have love, and it expresses itself in the relationship. That is kind of a radical approach to love. Because conventionally, we look at relationship and we say, I'm in love with this person. But what Lee is saying is that love is freestanding. It exists on its own. And we have love for another person, but it's bigger than that. It's way bigger than that, as we shall see. We start out on this path, and then it goes deeper than you ever thought. Seems like that to me, anyway. There's this concept of the beloved, with a capital B, in Sufism. And the idea is that the beloved is not a person, but love is reflected in that person. So, for example... I was mentioning that obviously love is not just between a man and a woman in a coupled relationship. There's a story of Rumi and Shamsi Tabriz. Some of you may have known about this. At least we've all heard Rumi poetry. And it has probably blown some of us away. Because if you read poem after poem after poem, you can't deny that this guy was in another universe. He lived as love. What happened to this person? Nobody lives like that. Well, as the story goes, Shams was a doorway to the beloved for Rumi. 
Shams was a master in Arabia and was looking for someone to pour himself into, someone to give what it is that he had, to pass on the state of love to someone who was ripe. As the story goes, and this happened in like the 12th century, so who the heck knows? You hear all these stories, what really happened? But the point is the essence of the story, not the details. So Shams has a vision that he should go to Konya. And while he's in Konya, he runs across a scholar teaching at a college, I think a religious institution or something like that. I don't know what his name was at the time, but he becomes Rumi. And he recognizes right away that this is the person somehow. Rumi's he's sitting on a bench or something. He's got a stack full of books, kind of like the stack full of books I have around me here. And there are several stories. Probably none of them are accurate, but one of them is that Shams takes the books and throws them down the well that's right next to him. And he says to Rumi, do you want me to retrieve them? They will be dry. And Rumi looks at him and he sees... He sees Shams, who Shams is. And he takes a big gulp and says no, and he goes off with Shams. That's one story. There's several others. I won't go into them. Being in relationship to someone who has been transformed into love. Lee was my teacher. So much came up for me to work with in relationship to my obstructions, ego, and all of that. But I had extreme heart openings with him also. In India, a lot of times, just laughing uncontrollably, or just in a mood of love. And especially with Yogi Ram Surat Kumar. He says in here, no self equals love. Self equals no love. And as soon as self is out of the way, love shows up just like that. Yeah. So being around a master who is in that condition opens you to that too. So at any rate, Rumi and Shams spend weeks or months, depending on the version of the story you read, together secluded. And... Then Shams leaves. And that's what precipitates all his poetry. Some say that Shams was murdered by Rumi's jealous disciples or students. Some even say that Rumi's own son was involved in that. Who the heck knows? Some stories say that Rumi traveled to Damascus searching and searching and searching for Shams. But what seems clear, well, I mean, we don't know, but what seems clear is that Shams disappeared. And this longing that was created in Rumi somehow transformed him. I'm going to read the back cover of a book that I bought in probably 83 or 84. I came across this book 
And it just blew my mind, blew my doors off. I'll read some of the poetry, a little bit. I drained this cup. There is nothing now but ecstatic annihilation. Were I ever other than this, I regret being born. If forever it is this, I'll trample both worlds and dance ecstatic forever. O oh, Shams, I am so drunk. What can I say but I am so drunk on love? I'm going to read a, a little section of another poem. The way of Moses is all hopelessness and need, and it is the only way to God. From when you were an infant, when has hopelessness ever failed you? Joseph's path leads into the pit. Don't flee across the chessboard of this world, for it is his game, and we are checkmate, checkmate. Bring a hundred sacks of gold, and God will say, bring the heart. And if you bring a dead heart carried like a coffin on your shoulders, God will say, oh, cheat, is this a graveyard? Bring the live heart, bring the live heart. Oh, seeker, though you have broken your vows a hundred times, come again, come again. For God has said, though you are on high or in the pit, consider me, for I am the way. This topic is about bringing the live heart, is about animating the live heart in our lives. It's not something that we do. It's something that kind of happens to us. One of the talks that got transcribed that's in Alchemy of Love and Sex is entitled, Once in Love, You Must Pursue It to the End. Where does that lead? I think I'll tell the story about Lila and Meisman. Maybe this is the last story. But it's so impactful. There's Lila and Majna, and they're in Arabia. They're going to school. And for whatever reason, they look at each other, and they just fall in love. They are lost in each other. They don't understand what's going on. Did you have that kind of experience when you were a kid, of just falling for somebody? Your first love, something like that? I mean, that's kind of my reference point for how Things might have started between them, but where it went, oh my God. I mean, it's totally consuming love of that order. So Majnan and Lila, they start spending a little bit of time together, and everybody starts noticing in the school, and they start talking, you know, how kids do, even probably in Arabia way back then, however many centuries ago it was. Everybody's talking, it's all the buzz. And Lila's family doesn't like it. Um, Lila's father is royalty of some sort. And he decides to pull her from school. And Majnan, whose name is actually Quaze, is devastated. And he starts wandering around town, lost, saying Lila's name. Lila, Lila. And people start calling him Majnan, which means madman, because he's so lost in this. And he starts reciting poetry. And so kids, I guess, like to uh, tweak him a little bit. So they go up to him and they'll say Lila's name and, and he goes off and he starts reciting poetry. So his dad 
is really upset. Majnun's dad, really upset. He wants his son to take over his position. He's some royalty too. And so he decides the best thing to do is to go and propose that Majnun and Lila get together and get married. So he goes to Lila's family and they say, why are you kidding me? Your son is a madman. Get out of here. Don't come back. Don't let the door hit you in the butt on the way out. The father is beside himself. He goes to the Kaaba. He takes Majnun with him. And they go to the Kaaba and he tells Majnun to pray to God to be relieved of this malady of love so that he can live a normal life. And Majnun gets there before the Kaaba, the holiest place in Arabia. And he's saying, yes, I will do this to his father. But then in front of the Kaaba, the holiest of holies, all of a sudden he impulsively just starts going on. Anyway, I won't read the thing, but it's like, make my love a hundred times stronger. So father is, he doesn't know what to do. Majnun just leaves uh, his father as time goes on. He's wandering out in the desert. Animals start coming around, wolves and all kinds of other creatures. And a prince comes wanting to hear Majnun's poetry. Lots of people come out to the desert just to hear Majnun's poetry. And this prince says, I will get Lila for you. He's just so impressed with Majnun that he says, I have an army, I will go and I will get her. So a couple months go by, the prince tells Majnun, we got to clean you up, make you presentable for Lila. And a couple months go by and Majnun says, hey, you said that you were going to go get Lila and it hasn't happened. What's up with this? You know, I'm going to go back out in the desert. And so the, the prince says, oh, yeah, you're right. So he goes to Lila's place and his army attacks. And Majnun is walking around the field. And he realizes that this is Lila's family that's being killed. And Lila is going to be devastated by this. And so he starts rooting for the other side. He starts rooting for the Lila's family instead of the army that's supposed to try to get Lila for him. So they all give it up, stop fighting. A young man comes out into the desert and I know there's a lot to this story. I guess maybe I'll just jump to these last two parts. One is some guy comes out into the desert and tells Majnan that he has seen Lila and he can take him to her. He can do that. And they actually exchange some notes. The guy runs back and forth and does this. And the day comes when he's going to take Majnan to see Lila. It's been some time. They haven't seen each other, I think, since school. And Lila is just as much in love with Majnun as Majnun is with Lila. And so the guy takes Majnun into the garden and says, wait here, I'm going to go get her. 
And he goes and he gets her. And she comes out. And they look at each other. They catch each other's eyes. And they start to run toward each other. Or Majnan starts to run toward her. And she says, no. And Majnan kind of gets it. And he turns and runs away. The point of the story is that what mattered is love, not the consummation of the relationship. Both of them knew that. So Majin's a complete madman, out in the desert, animals all around, people coming to hear his poetry. He's lost in love, and he becomes a great saint in Arabia. At this point, he's running away from everybody. This is at the end of the story. He's running away from everybody. Anybody who comes near him, he doesn't want to be around anyway. So somebody calls out to him and says, Lila just died. And Majnan stops running and he comes over to the person and the person says that he'll take Majnan to Lila, Lila's grave. And so Majnan goes there, falls on the grave. All the animals are around. And this is how the story ends. According to Nizami, the uh, author or the poet who, who's known for writing the story. So Mashan's on the grave. Here's what Nizami writes at the end of the, end of the book. Mashan remained as lonely in death as he had been in life. Having found his rest, he was safe from wagging tongues. For a long time, no one knew no curiosity disturbed his slumber. Some say that he remained laying on the grave of his love where he had died for a month or two, that as much as a year passed, people thought him still alive. Whenever they came to watch from afar, they saw a wild animal surrounding the grave. Protected by them, Majnan slept safely like a king in his litter. Patiently they waited, and Lila's tomb seemed to have become a home for the roving beasts. Afraid of such guardians, people did not dare to approach. They thought and said to one another, the stranger is lying on the grave as usual. Thus the dead man was left alone. Even beasts which feed on carrion did not touch him. What little remained of him fell into dust and returned to earth. In the end, nothing was left but his bones. Then only did the wild animals abandon their watch. One after the other, they disappeared in the wilderness. When the magic lock had been removed from the hidden treasure, people approached to solve the riddle and found what remained of Majnan. Death had completed his work so well that no one felt fear or disgust. The white shell, its pearl vanished, was washed clean, and men let jeweled tears of mourning flow into it. They all wept, members of Majnan and Lila's tribes, as well as others, strangers of pure heart, mourning the lovers, renting their garments in lamentation. And Majnan was buried at Lila's side. Then there's a final poem. Two lovers lie awaiting this tomb their resurrection from the grave's dark womb. Faith and separation, true in love. One tent will hold them in the world above.
In most of these talks, we discuss Dharma. This is Dharma too, but it's like organic Dharma to me. I don't know where this leads. I have absolutely no idea. But I know that love and loss is working on me. It's not that we're, God, please. It's not that we're going to become roomy. But all of this points somewhere for us. So to me, we're called to love. Most of the time, we're really not that much in touch with that. There's so many things going on. I don't know about you, but I got a schedule. I got a calendar. I got it filled up. But when longing finds you, it works on you. you know? Have you experienced love in separation? Have you seen it anywhere? That's a question. Anybody? All right, I'll conclude. And then I'll leave space at the end if you would like to say something. Sometimes uh, there's really nothing to say. What, what can you say? <laughs> In a recent talk, the question was asked, what is the purpose of life? Like, what's the purpose of your life? I mean, is it just to make a living? Have conventional relationship? Nothing judgmental about that, but is that the purpose of life? Or is there something more? I would say, I, I believe anyway, again, above my pay grade, but I believe that it's actually to become love. And that is who we are. You might say that it's showing up as a bodhisattva or someone who serves others with love, serves them, puts them first. Like, wow, what a life. You can still live your life and make a living and all that, but to have that intention. When longing comes through loss, you know, my wife Corinna died. Somebody asked me her last words the other day. <laughs> and I actually forgot them. I remembered. She said, I love them so much. It was obvious who she was referring to. So I don't know if love found her, but it seemed that way to me. So I feel left with longing, how to be with that except to love more. So I wrote down three questions, maybe Dharma questions, I don't know. The rhetorical questions, though. Is it possible that once in love, when we find it always in love? Like if you really find love, it's not dependent on 
any one particular person. And that that's actually the point of life. Someone may be a doorway for us, reflecting the beloved, which we won't define. Number two, could it be that loss creates some need in us to look deeper and that the universe is actually benevolent? I don't want to know about that, but longing finds you. And there's no going back. So if there's no going back, the only way out is through. That's in the alchemy of love and sex. And the third question, can being with love and longing take us to the very heart of God and who we are? You know, the story of Krishna and the gopis is interesting, too, because Krishna left after making love to all the gopis. And that's what created love in them, pure love, total love. Total love. And not only that, it wasn't just love for Krishna. It was love for everything as Krishna. That could only be affected, at least according to Vallabhacharya on the love games of Krishna. That could only be affected with Krishna's leaving. Those of us who do presentations here, we share what's real for us, what's What's really vital? What's what's really vital in our practice right now? <laughs> Lately, I've just felt like I want to call up certain people who have been going through some stuff, or just people, just because I've just been making some phone calls. I never did that before. Just call and leave a message. I'm thinking about you. I know you got something going on. You know, if you want call back, no pressure. As I'm saying this, I'd really like to just say, love you. You know? We couldn't say, I love you, when we were growing up, a lot of us. There was so much other stuff that I couldn't say it genuinely. It was there, kind of buried. But I couldn't say it genuinely. And, you know, that transferred into my relationship for some years. But the thing is that, you know, that Leonard Cohen line, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Little by little, as you kind of practice in relationship and become a little bit more vulnerable, let your guard down. I mean, not with not indiscriminately. You open up and more feeling comes to the surface, including feelings of love. And so that's something that I say regularly to my kids these days. And that I said to Karuna for years, but it took a while. It took a while to get there. You know, love changes over the years. What you take love at in your 20s, <laughs> is different than it is in your 30s and 40s and 50s. I think I'll read something. You know, we got four minutes left. 
I'll use the time because I think the subject deserves it. This is defining love. Basically, what we keep seeing is what love isn't. And the more we see what love isn't, the more we appreciate what it is, whatever it is. One comes to realize that to embody love is an outpouring, not a need or a reliance or an external taking in. As one becomes more a student of love, one realizes that one either loves or one studies love. You can't exactly define love, but what you can do is develop a question about love, which will continue to be refined with more and more clarity and distinction. It's not that you are always weighing things against what love is, but your experience serves to refine the question so that your focus becomes more and more singular, less and less fuzzy. There are three books. I have them here. I was going to read some of Lee's poetry to Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar, but didn't get to do it. But here's Death of a Dishonest Man. There's three of these books. It seems like he was compelled to write poetry of love to Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar. There's a similarity with how Rumi was compelled to write all these poems to Shams. Realizing that the person is not the beloved, but a reflection of that. So life seems to be kind of a training ground for love, even though we don't look at it that way most of the time.